This afternoon we're going to um, deal with what Scripture teaches about justification as it's taught to us in Lord's Day 23. In connection with that, we will read from Leviticus chapter 5, verse 14, to 6, verse 7, on guilt offerings. Leviticus chapter 5, starting at verse 14. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy things and shall add a fifth of it, a fifth to it, and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. If anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock, or its equivalent, for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security, or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, If he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do, and thereby become guilty. Let us now turn to Lord's Day 23 of the Catechism. on our justification. Lord's Day 23. Here we read as follows. But what does it help you now that you believe all this? In Christ I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I've grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. 
He grants these to me as if I never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, for only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith only. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we live in an age that is full of paradoxes. One of the great paradoxes of our age is that though it is profoundly unreligious, it acts as if it is religious. That is to say, it works in religious categories. One of those categories is guilt. Western culture has developed a profound guilt, a sense of profound guilt in relation to racism, for example. Anybody who is perceived as racist is immediately canceled by other people. When someone is canceled, it means that that person's reputation and employment is attacked and sometimes destroyed online by people who think that person has said something wrong. Typically, canceling will come from within the person's organization or business. When someone is canceled, it often means that their career is over. And that makes cancel culture and cancellation a frightening thing for a lot of people. To give an example, some time ago there was a middle-aged American lady who was a member of an online group whose members all knit And she wrote on her blog that she was going to visit India. She also wrote that she had wanted to go to India since she was a teenager. She had had an opportunity at one point in her teens, but at that time she declined because, she said, it felt like being offered a seat on a flight to Mars. In other words, she felt like this was just so out of reach for her. It might as well as have been another planet. But now that she was older, she was able to make the trip, and she was looking forward to it. Now a few people took offense that she compared going to India with going to Mars. Interestingly, most of these people were not Indian themselves. Others joined in, and they brought all sorts of other issues into this discussion. And eventually this lady apologized and apologized over and over and multiple times in different ways. But none of what she said was enough. People were still critical. One person, for example, wrote, quote, You're sorry, people are offended. That's not an apology for your deeply racist and reductive statement. Please rethink this trip. 
Don't force the people of India to deal with you and your colonializing mindset. End quote. There were lots more comments like that. I think when I checked, the total number of comments was about 1,200. And eventually she published a follow-up apology. But that was still not enough for many of these people. And you know what's most striking about this phenomenon? There is no grace in that kind of conversation and no possibility for forgiveness or atonement. There are only people trying to outdo each other in being morally pure. Are you against racism? And do you write that on a blog like this? Then someone will come who is even more against racism than you are, and they will criticize you. And then someone else comes for them and criticizes them. And this is called a purity spiral. People try to outdo each other in a display of moral purity, and eventually the purity spiral gets crushed under its own moral weight because you can only take this kind of conversation so far before it grinds to a halt. And what you have left afterwards is a group of angry, bitter, self-righteous people looking for the next issue to latch onto, and they have no way out. There's a sense in which our age has a lot to say about guilt. But guilt is not a secular concept. Guilt is fundamentally a religious concept. And if you really want to understand what guilt is about, you need to turn to the Bible. The Bible teaches us that guilt is objective, not subjective. And the Catechism deals with that as well. The Gospel is that you can actually... Get rid of guilt. Not by your own works, but by the works of Christ. The Old Testament gives us insight into guilt and how to deal with it. And then with that insight in mind, we can return to the catechism and consider Lord's Day 23. So that's what we're going to do this afternoon as well. And so we'll come at it from the perspective that because we are righteous by true faith in Jesus Christ, our guilt is taken away. And we'll see that our guilt is taken away before God before our neighbor, and before ourselves. Now, we ourselves have, because of the time in which we live, probably absorbed some of the secular thinking of our time, ourselves. Consider, for example, the words of Lord's Day 23, which we read together this afternoon. It says, Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned, against all of God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and so on. It says that I have grievously sinned against all of God's commandments. But do we actually believe that? Does our conscience really accuse us? Does it bother us sometimes? And if it does, is that because of the reason that the Catechism says it should, namely that I have grievously sinned against all of God's commandments, or are there other reasons? Think about that word grievous. We think that grievous is when you follow sin as far as it goes. But actually the whole range of sin before that is grievous as well. Sin is not just that you do things that are wrong. It's the whole spectrum of rebellious thoughts, words, and deeds that go before it. It is the absence of good in our lives as well as active evil. 
When the Catechism says we have never kept any of God's commandments, what it means is that we have never kept any of them completely. We have never lived up to the totality of obedience that God's law requires of us. And we are by nature not inclined to do so. The Catechism says we are still inclined to all evil. We should not misunderstand that. The Catechism is not suggesting that all of us are actually hypocrites um, who are trying to deceive each other. The point is that we're still caught between the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new. The point is that the old nature, our basic inclination to sin, is still sleeping under the surface. And we forget that sometimes. We see the progress of God's Spirit in our lives and we start to let our guard down. We think that we don't need to be vigilant anymore, and the catechism is trying to warn us against that attitude. Inclined to all evil means we should not think that there are some forms of sin that we would never commit. We are all capable of all evil. The word inclined means that this is the direction in which you lean. Think, for example, of a soccer ball being kicked onto the roof of your house. If there's... um, boys living at home, then probably at some point this has happened. And the, the ball goes on top of the roof of the house, and then, unless something holds it back, it rolls back down again. It is inclined to go down. And that's what we're all like by nature, says the Catechism. Breathing may restrain us, circumstances may restrain us, but we should never think that the potential for great evil does not live within each one of us. There was only one man who was truly good. The rest of us are all works in progress. So sin is still a force at work in our lives, and your conscience will not adequately tell you how grievous it is. If you want to understand sin, you don't turn to the internet. You definitely don't turn to Twitter. You don't turn to social media. You turn to Scripture. To get a sense of how grievous sin is, look at the Old Testament sacrifices. There were four types of sacrifices. The burnt offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. There was also the grain offering, which could be considered a fifth type, but it often went together with the burnt offering, and so you could include it under that heading. And certainly, if you look at it from the perspective of only the animal sacrifices, and then there were four, four kinds. And each of these sacrifices portrayed a particular way of looking at sin. Burnt offerings, for example, could be offered for various reasons. But often the burnt offering was offered to atone for a particular sin. So the burnt offering clearly showed that sin is an offense before God, which requires ransom and death. Guilt was symbolically transferred to the animal, when the worshiper laid his hand on the head of the animal, and then the animal died instead of the sinner. So the second kind, the peace offerings, or fellowship offerings as they're called in some translations, show that sin damages relationships. It damages relationships between God and man, but also between man and his neighbor. The offering was meant to restore those damaged relationships. So this offering highlighted the social cost of sin, and the need for reconciliation. The third one, the the sin offering, used what one scholar calls a medical model of sin. That, That one showed that sin is pollution, and that it requires purification. 
The sin offering shows how sin makes things dirty and they need to be cleansed. And then you get the guilt offering, and that's the one that we're going to focus on in depth this afternoon. This is called the trespass offering in some other translations, but the translation that we're using here translates it as guilt offering. And the guilt offering portrays what some would call a commercial picture of sin. It shows sin as a debt which requires a form of compensation. So each of these four offerings highlighted different aspects of sin and the damage that it caused. And they also included a form of atonement. But the focus in each offering was different. So the point is that an Israelite living in Old Testament times would have had a much better idea of exactly how grievous sin is and of its pervasive influence. It's interesting for us to take a closer look at the guilt offering in light of Lord's Day 23. What is guilt? What is guilt? Well, the word translated as guilt can have a wide range of meaning in the Old Testament. Here, it's being used in the sense that somebody bears responsibility for having committed a particular sin. And that responsibility is the guilt. So guilt is not just a feeling. Guilt is an objective condition that comes from having trespassed against the Lord's commandments. That's why it's called a trespass offering in the New King James Version and a guilt offering in the ESV. So what sorts of sins would require this particular kind of offering? Let's look at it together. According to verse 15, if anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, then he needs to bring this guilt offering. And at first glance, that description seems a little bit vague. If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, well, what are those? If it's the holy things of the Lord, you would expect it to be something like the the food that was supposed to be given to the priests, for instance. But what are the odds of actually accidentally eating that? It's it's kind of a vague description. What, What People knew the rules, so what could this refer to? And verse 15 refers to those who who commit a breach of faith and sin unintentionally. That's interesting. Whatever this, whatever this unintentional sin is, it is still regarded as a breach of faith. In fact, in the Old Testament, there are really only two kinds of sin. There is sin committed unintentionally. That's the one category. And then sin committed with a high hand is the other category. So... Sin committed with a high hand is deliberate rebellion against God. You know the high hand is the raised fist? So sin with a high hand is deliberate rebellion against God. Everything else goes in the category of unintentional sin. So unintentional sin cannot mean that you did it by accident without knowing the rules. Instead, unintentional means that it was unplanned. It was not premeditated rebellion against God but it was a sin committed in moral weakness. The sort of thing that the Apostle Paul writes about in Romans 7 verse 18 when he writes that he has the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out. So this kind of breach of faith would be unintentional in the sense of unplanned, specifically then in relation to the holy things of God. For example, a farmer might 
You can imagine a farmer who was supposed to have tithed. You know, you give your 10%, and then at the last moment, he kept the tithe for himself because he felt in a moment of weakness that, that he could not part with this. This definition of unintentional sin also explains the wording of verse 17 because if you look at verse 17, verse 15 referred to sin that was committed in a weakness. Verse 17 definitely commit, refers to sin committed out of ignorance. See, here it says, if anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt. In other words, his conscience starts to bother him. He shall bear his iniquity. So he doesn't know any better. And the interesting thing is it's still sin. Ignorance is no excuse. And we look a lot at motivation, don't we? We say, well, how can this be sin if the person didn't do it on purpose? It was not deliberate. It was not done out of rebellion. He accidentally transgressed. How can this still be sin? But Scripture doesn't let you do that. Guilt is a responsibility that someone has for committing a particular sin. It does not stop being sin if you didn't know at the time that it was. A good example from our day-to-day life would be speeding, right? It makes no difference whether you know that you're speeding or not. The moment that you drive past a, a camera when you're speeding, you get photographed, you get, you get the bill in the mail later on. And your ignorance of of the speed limit at that point, even if you weren't aware that you were speeding, that does not nullify the fact that you speeded. It does not take away the ticket. Your ignorance of the rules does not nullify them. But what's particularly interesting here is that this guilt offering applied even to what we would call deliberate sin. Look at 6, verse 2 and 3. If... Anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby. Can you imagine? I mean, look at what this says. We've heard before of church members defrauding each other. It does, uh, thankfully, not happen very often. But occasionally you might hear of Christian business people who, who take advantage of each other. But robbery? Really? If anyone in our church community actually robbed another church member, we would never forget, would we? Like this, is, this is pretty serious stuff. And yet, atonement is still possible. Forgiveness is still possible even for people who do such things as long as there is genuine repentance. The only unforgivable sin is sin with a high hand. That is, unrepentant sin and open and deliberate defiance against God. It seems to resemble the sin against the Holy Spirit in the, uh, the sin against the Holy Spirit in the New Testament in the sense that such a person actively rejects God. And by definition, there's no true repentance there and therefore no forgiveness either. So when you read all of these Old Testament laws, you, you really start to develop an appreciation for what the Catechism says when, when it tells us that we have grievously sinned against all of God's commandments. But what is so striking when you read these Old Testament laws is not just how grievous sin is, but how willing God is to forgive. God urgently wants people to be restored to Him. 
Every single one of these sacrifices was meant to restore the broken relationship with God and with your neighbor, and often this included a celebration of this restored relationship as well. Some of these sacrifices, the worshiper would eat part of the sacrifice as well. It was, as one scholar puts it, a sacred barbecue. Everything was set up to draw people in. And so when you look at these regulations, don't, don't be put off by the fact that they sometimes come across a little bit dry to us in our cultural context. This is about forgiveness. You should see the gospel in this. Yes, God is the lawgiver and the one with whom we must have peace, but he's also the one who enables that. And when you read this, you really begin to value what Christ did because all of these sacrifices were fulfilled in him. Does the burnt offering remind us that sin requires a ransom? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Does sin damage the relationship between God and man and between each other? Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Does the sin offering remind us that sin is pollution? The blood of Jesus cleanses us of all sin. Does sin leave us in God's debt? Our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, has fully paid for all our sins with his precious blood. The sacrifices show us what needs to happen in order to take away sin, but they also show what Christ has done. He is the ultimate and final offering In particular, Isaiah 53 verse 10 says that his soul or his life was made a guilt offering. We sang about that when we sang from hymn 25. And what this is saying is in this whole discussion of guilt offerings, the life of Christ was the ultimate guilt offering. He is the one who paid off our debt to God. In fact, he made us positively righteous. Lord's Day 23 reminds us of that when it says that God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. What does impute mean? It means to credit. So it's not just that he takes away the sin that you have, but he also credits you with all of the righteousness of Christ, all of his holiness, In other words, from God's perspective, all the claims of the law against his people are satisfied. He regards them as completely righteous and completely holy. It's not just that sin is taken away. It is that the relationship between us and God is fully restored. All of our wrongdoing has been compensated for with God. He regards us now as completely righteous. He treats us as his dear children. And that he does this before we could have done anything to earn it. And that is depicted for us every time that we see a baptism. The inability of a child to merit its baptism clearly shows our natural inability to merit God's grace. But he gives it anyway. And faith, when you grow up, is simply the act of believing this. Because... We are righteous by true faith in Jesus Christ. Our guilt is taken away before God. Let's see now also how it's taken away before our neighbor. It's interesting to note the wording in 6 verse 2 of our reading. If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor. 
Doesn't that strike you? Someone commits a, a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor. Who is the primary offended party here? It's not your neighbor. Sin against a neighbor is primarily a sin against God. And then the verse goes on to talk about personal property, the matter of deposits or security or through robbery, etc. And we, we focus on that. But what about the rights of God? We focus on our rights that have been violated, but what about the rights of God? A trespass against our neighbor is always a trespass against, against God, first of all. Are we as zealous for the restitution of God's rights as we are for our own? At the same time, when the Lord forgives someone, then that person should also be forgiven by his or her neighbor. It is a forgiveness of Christ that binds us together. A related verse is Ephesians 2, verse 16, which expresses the same principle in a different context when it refers to the natural enmity between Jews and Gentiles, and there was lots of that. And it says that Christ reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So the Lord ties us together. It is not possible for someone to be right with the Lord and not be right with his neighbor. So if the person who has sinned against us truly has been forgiven by the Lord, then, then we also need to let go of our anger towards that person as well. But having said that, true faith always results in deeds. So 6 verse 1 through 7 of our reading is actually a strong warning to those who sin against their neighbor and want to be right with God. It says in verse 5 that anyone who sins against his neighbor in any of these ways which has been described must make amends and add one-fifth of the value as compensation. And only then can he go to the priest and bring his ram to the Lord. In other words, do not come to the Lord and expect forgiveness if you have not first acknowledged wrong to your neighbor and compensated him where this is possible, or at least made amends to the best of your ability. This principle is expressed in the New Testament as well when Jesus says, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Love for God and love for your neighbor cannot be separated from each other. If you sin against someone and are truly repentant, then the person against whom you sin does need to forgive you. That's a biblical principle. It may take time to work through the consequences of sin, but at some point there needs to be forgiveness. After all, because we are righteous by true faith in Jesus Christ, our guilt is taken away. If it's taken away before God and we've done all that we could to make amends, then it should be taken away before our neighbor as well. But it can be difficult to win trust back. And sometimes that never happens. When you read our passage, it's clear that the covenant obligation is reconciliation and peace, but feelings of trust take longer to grow. And if the trust has been broken, it does not grow back easily, and sometimes it never does. So what should you do with that? Well, if there's someone in your life who does not trust you because of the things that you've done, then your first step is to do all you can to be reconciled to that person. And if trust is still lacking on their side, then all you can do is hope and pray in humility that it will grow back. Sometimes people try to force these situations through manipulation. 
but you do not regain trust by manipulation. You regain it by living before the Lord in humility as a sinner who has been forgiven. And at some point, if your faith is real, the fruit of faith will show. And eventually others will notice as well, and maybe one day you will win back the trust that you broke. But until then, leave it with God. Because we are righteous by true faith in Jesus Christ, our guilt is taken away. We've seen that it is taken away before God, and therefore must also be taken away before our neighbor. And when that happens, then it can be taken away before ourselves as well. In other words, we don't need to feel guilty anymore. And that's our last point. Now you notice this point comes last because our own opinion on these matters is the least important. Often we start with ourselves. We start with how we feel about a situation. We start with our own assessment. But a lot of the way that we think is subjective impressions about ourselves and about others. But it's so easy to be wrong, even though you're convinced that you're right. So really, our own analysis of a given situation should be last in factoring into how how we think about things. But at the same time, there's a way in which our own thoughts and our own memories can make us look away from Christ. We might think of things that we've done wrong in the past. Maybe we did our best to make amends, but we still wonder whether or not the Lord really accepts us. And if that's our struggle, then let us remember that the Old Testament sacrifices indisputably teach that God wants to dwell with his people. And he has made that possible through the one great sacrifice of the perfect life and the perfect death of Jesus Christ. The Catechism reminds us that we are not saved on account of the worthiness of our faith, but the worthiness of Christ. Only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. There's nothing more thorough than the work of Christ. All of these sacrifices point to him. So look to Christ. We can receive his righteousness and make it our own by faith only. If we have truly repented and has asked God for forgiveness, if we have truly reconciled with our neighbor to the best of our ability, then we have no more guilt. If God has let go of it, then we should as well. Then the words of Hebrews 10 verse 22 apply to us. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That washing is greater than any sin. It is more complete than any purity spiral. And when we really believe that, then there is peace. Because our virtue does not depend on putting others down to prop ourselves up. It doesn't depend on us or our feelings in any way, shape, or form. Before God, we are all equally in need of grace. Before God, all those who repent have equally received the perfect imputation of Christ in equal measure. And then they are heirs to life everlasting, regardless of language, regardless of ancestry, regardless of skin color. There is no greater equalizer than that. May we all learn what it means and live accordingly. Amen.